Dear congregation, we recall last week how uh, the preaching of Paul had brought the Ephesian people to the point in their life where they had gathered up all their uh, paraphernalia that uh, pertained to magic and burned it in a huge pile at great expense and cost to themselves. And there was something of a revival in the city of Ephesus. And the, and the preaching of uh, law and gospel went forth with great power in that place. So we saw the positive last week. Now today we see the negative backlash. Now we see uh, Satan rising up to resist the advance of the gospel. He can't have this, right? He can't have people submitting to Jesus Christ in Ephesus. And so now we get what I'll say really is, is the inevitable backlash against the preaching and the revival that's taking place in Ephesus. And it begins with the guild of the silversmiths. Now the silversmiths, as we are told, make these little shrines. Silversmiths in Ephesus made these little shrines. And so you can imagine very small little things, almost like a souvenir of some kind. Uh, and it would have been a representation then of the temple of Artemis. So on the back of the outline, you see this magnificent temple, 475 feet long, 60 feet high, 127 of those pillars, massive pillars. You can see uh, the, the size of the people next to them. None of this temple remains, actually, uh, except the, like, like the foundation of it. But you can see, it's not very clear in the picture, but that cutout there, you can see the goddess Artemis in, in there. She's that statue, if you can kind of kind of make out that statue in there. But this is the magnificent temple of Artemis uh, of the Ephesians. Now, this temple in, uh, in, in Ephesus created a great deal of demand in the city for these little shrines that uh, these silversmiths in Ephesus produced. And they produced these uh, shrines, and they sold them, and they made a considerable profit. Now, a guild, uh, by guild, is meant... These silversmiths had an organization that kind of regulated the production and the sale of these shrines. Uh, a similar thing today would be like OPEC, right? That regulates the production of oil in the Middle East, right? They, they try to set the price and they try to manipulate things for their advantage. Well, in the same way, you have a guild here in Ephesus that is regulating the production and the sale of these shrines, well, the silversmiths don't have to be too uh, alert to see that uh, they're, 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 there's a huge threat to their business, to their profits. Because as the Christian movement gains steam, right, and as more and more of the people of Ephesus, and even as Demetrius says, that all of Asia come to believe in Jesus Christ, they come to believe that all these other idols, well, I said idols, all these other gods, right, are just idols. They're just a figment of someone's imagination. They're not real. They're as, as, as real as the tooth fairy. And there's no reason to put any confidence or stock in these gods, and one of them is Artemis. Well, again, these, the guild of silversmiths is relying uh, upon the uh, temple of Artemis and all the worship that is associated with it to keep up the demand for these little shrines that they produce. And as the worship of Artemis goes down, so does the demand for their little shrines that they produce. And so it becomes a serious situation for these silversmiths. 
And that's why, and that's why uh, Demetrius calls this meeting. And he tells them exactly what I just said, that our business is in serious trouble. Notice in verse, notice in verse 26, in verse 26, that uh, Demetrius says that Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that God's made with hands, even if the hands of a silversmith, God's made with hands are no gods at all. Now, my friends, in the time of the, of the Roman Empire, there was very little concern about new religions. You understand that the people of Ephesus, the, the silversmith guild, is not at all worried that this is a new religion. They don't care about new religions. There's a great deal of, of uh, disinterest in religion amongst the Roman people. All right? they, uh, there's all kinds of traveling teachers going about uh, preaching this doctrine and this truth and philosophy and things like that. Many of these people are going about. And so this is nothing new that Paul comes to town preaching a new religion. But it's when it touches their pocketbook, right? It's when it touches their wallet that they get concerned. Now it becomes a problem. And so Demetrius calls this meeting of the silversmiths. And he whips them up into a frenzy, as you can read there. The city was filled with confusion. And in verse 29, we read that they rushed with one accord into the theater. So again, I gave you a picture of that theater. Well, actually, it's just a diagram of the theater on the back. I'm told that uh, roughly 25,000 people could, could fit in that theater. And this theater, my friends, you can see today. The ruins of this theater are still very much there yet. You can go and visit it, and you can see it. They actually built this theater right into the side of a mountain so that, obviously, you would have the inclined Right, the incline necessary to provide this, this, uh, this theater. So 25,000 people could fit in there, and now it appears that a great number of people rushed to this theater uh, to, to protest this disrespect that was being done to Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. Now once they're gathered in that theater, we read that Paul wants to join them. In verse 30, we read, and when Paul wanted to go into the assembly. Now that's incredible, isn't it? I hope to say more about this in a, in a point of application because, Paul, you must be mad. You can't go into that assembly. They'll tear you limb from limb. Why, they'll, they'll kill you faster than, than you can even walk through the door. What are you possibly thinking? That's very interesting, isn't it, my friends, that the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to have the normal kind of fear that normal people have, right? When we, we sense or when we recognize a threat, we, we pull back, right? We, we, we take safety in something. But Paul is so fired with zeal for the gospel. It, it's so strong in his heart and his soul that he thinks nothing. Oh, I'll go to the theater. I'll speak to them. I'll, I'll, I'll tell them what's going on, and I'll proclaim to them the truth of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can see that the, the Asiarchs there, so that would have been the provincial uh, governors, you might say, who must have been gathered in the city of Ephesus for some meeting at that time. And some of them were friends of Paul. That's interesting too, isn't it? Paul has his friends, even amongst the people that are in the governing assembly at the time. They quickly write him and say, Paul, don't you dare go into that theater. 
it's not going to go well for you there. And it sounds like, uh, it sounds like it's only uh, that his friends, in verse 31, uh, basically held him back. Uh, Paul would have gone, but his friends refused to allow him to enter into the theater. So the situation in the theater is, is mass chaos, as you might expect. We come to the third point, the Jews. Because we read in the verse 33, and some of the, of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. Since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. Now again, Luke gives us a very, he's giving us a very broad survey of what's happening here, so it's not entirely clear why the Jews are involved. I will say this, though. We know, again, from the historical records of the time, that the Jews were very anxious to distinguish themselves from the Christians. Here's why. In the, religion, in, the, uh, in the Roman Empire at the time, the Jews were a legal religion. They were legally allowed to meet and to gather and to practice their religion. The problem was is that since Christianity grew out of Judaism, many in the Roman Empire just lumped them together, that Jews and Christians were the same people. They both worshipped just one God. They both worshipped a Messiah. Of course, the Jews were still expecting him to come. The Christians believed he had already come. But still, in the, mind of the, in the popular mind, right, people don't make these distinctions, and they just lumped the Jews and the Christians together. And so the Jews at this time are very anxious to show that, no, we are not the Christians. They are a different religion. They're not a legal religion. We are the old, ancient, traditional religion of the Jewish people. And they are not. And so it seems likely that in verse 33, the Jews take one of their own, probably a man who was very gifted, think of something like a lawyer here, somebody who could persuade people, and they push him forward. And they say, Alexander, you go up there, you go up into that assembly, into that theater, and persuade these people that this isn't about us. This isn't about the Jewish people. We read that Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. And, of course, it fails miserably because as soon as he gets up there, he motions with his hand. The people all see him, and the only thing they can see is that he's a Jew. They lump Jews and Christians together, right? They don't make that distinction. And so they just fly into a frenzy. And we note that for two hours, for almost two hours, they, they yell and cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this is clearly a mob. And the, the Jews, the attempt of the Jews to distinguish themselves from the Christians is a failure. So finally, the mayor comes in. We read that the town clerk or the mayor comes in and he uh, manages to calm them down and to dismiss the crowd. And the way he does this, by the way, you can see it in his comments how, uh, again, what I said before, the Romans don't really care about new religions. There's a new religion popping up every day anyway. There's always someone going around. You know, I think about the internet today, right? You can find on the internet all different groups that, that uh, you know, unite around a certain belief or philosophy or teaching or whatever it may be. Well, a similar thing, probably on a slightly lesser scale, but a similar thing in the ancient Roman Empire. There's always teachers who are going about teaching this or the next thing, followers of so-and-so, followers of this man, followers of that man, right? And you see the town clerk here says, listen, these men are not robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess, Right? They haven't done anything. You know, they haven't stolen from us. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can't hurt us is kind of his message, right? He's just, he's just another traveling teacher. Leave him alone. 
And then he says, the courts are in session. If you want to sue someone, you can always take him to court. But then he comes, he brings out the big guns in verse 40. And in verse 40, he says, we are in danger of being accused of a riot. Now here, there's a very clear history behind this, this statement. And that is that Ephesus, I told you that Ephesus was one of the leading cities, either the fourth or the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. And Ephesus was a city who had been granted the privilege of being what in the Roman Empire was called a free city. A free city. That was a privilege uh, given to very few cities in the Roman Empire. And if you had it, it was a matter of tremendous pride. Because basically, the Roman Empire then basically gave you a free hand. You were given uh, autonomy to, to govern your city pretty much the way you wanted. Now, again, there were some things, right, that always had to be in place. You had to pay the taxes, right? And, and, and you know, and you had to be a, basically a stable, secure society. But then the Romans would make you a free city. And the, city, the people of Ephesus are very proud of that fact. We are a free city. We govern ourselves. The quickest way to lose your status as a free city was to have a riot. If there's one thing Romans don't like, it's a riot. We don't like them in our day. They didn't like them in their day. And the quickest way to lose your privilege of being a free city was to have a riot. And so here the town clerk comes and he says, folks, I don't need to remind you that if the Roman authorities hear that there's been a riot in the city of Ephesus, we could lose our status as a free city. And that would be a humiliation that none of us want to bear. And so this man... Uh, Evidently, that uh, hit home with the people, and they disperse. And the tumult is over. Kind of a similar ending to what we saw happen in the city of Corinth. You'll remember when the Jews dragged Paul to Gallio. Remember the proconsul in Corinth at the time. And Gallio, remember, he just shrugs his shoulders. He says, this is just a debate amongst you Jewish people. Fight it out amongst yourselves. I got no time for it, right? And he, he turns his back on it. In the same way, in the city of Ephesus, the town clerk's like, guys, let them be. They're not stealing from our temples. Who cares? And so uh, uh, he, he basically dismisses it. So that's the, uh, that's the mayor. Now, there's some lessons that we can learn from this story, my friends. And in the first place, I want to speak about mob action. You know, there's this bandwagon effect that is so strong in the human psyche, in human psychology, uh, and it was back then, and it's just as powerful now. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, has this little quote. He says, where there are many, there will be more. Where there are many, there will be more. And isn't that how we as humans function? When we see a crowd, when we see a great number of people, we feel drawn to it, don't we? We, we feel like we got to get on the bandwagon. we got to get on board. Whatever this is, you know, People have done these social experiments, right? Like there will be a gathering like this one this morning. And, and, and one side of the church will agree to all of a sudden stand up. Just, just stand up. And the other people in the audience look around and, and they stand up. Because it just seems like that's what everybody's doing, right? Now, in some respects, of course, this can be a, a good thing for discerning, you know, what, how we're supposed to act in a certain way. But a mob action, my friends, is when people lay aside their mind and their reason. It becomes a kind of drunkenness. And people follow the mob and do things that later they wonder how they ever were persuaded to do it and things that they regret later. 
And so we as Christians especially need to be on guard against this. The key verse here is verse 32. Verse 32, and the majority, that is the majority of the people who were in this theater, did not know for what cause they had come together. My friends, this is shameful. Here's these people yelling and carrying on, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They don't even know why they're there. And look what they're doing. But my friends, the same response happens in churches too, where a group of of church members can start to agitate about something. And pretty soon, others of us get swept up in in like the groundswell of this opinion. And without using our minds to think, we kind of just are swept along with the flood. Now children, I'd like you to look at your outline that I made for you today. Because you see that picture I put on the back there. And what do you see there? Right, you see those people, and they're walking in a line, right? They each have their hands on the, the shoulders of the one in front of them. But what's over their eyes? Do you see that? Take your pen once and just circle what's over their eyes. Or draw an arrow to it, because I want you to see that this morning. They're all blindfolded, aren't they? They can't see where they're going. And that's the mob effect, isn't it? That when we get caught up in this, in this mob action... We stop thinking. It's like we walk with our eyes shut. We put our brain on the shelf and we just get swept along in a crowd of people. And so what's happening in that picture there, children, can happen at school, can't it? There can be a group of children. There can be a group of boys. There can be a group of girls, right? And they're angry at such and such a teacher. And the one tells the one and the one tells the other and the other tells the other. And pretty soon, three, four, five of them get stirred up. But remember what Matthew Henry said, where there are many, there will be more. And pretty soon other children join the crowd. Maybe they don't even know what the old agitation is about. And they get swept along. Children, watch out for that. That's not a good thing. That's not a God-honoring way to make choices and to live in this life. And all of us, my friends, need to stop in that situation. We need to stop. We need to think. Consider, deliberate. Whatever you do in such situations, don't make decisions. You'll regret it. That's not the time to make decisions. Watch the outrage, right? And maybe especially in our day when we live in a, in a, in a culture of outrage where, where you're supposed to be outraged. It's expected that you're in an outrage over something. Everybody's a victim of something in their life. And the natural response is to be outraged about it. And the more outraged you are, the more heroic you are, the more brave you are to step out in an outrage. My friends, that's not a God-honoring way. God gives us a mind and a reason to think. And according to the scriptures, my friends, anything that diminishes the power of our mind or the use of our mind, be it alcohol, be it drugs, be it a mob action, whatever it may be, Anything that brings us into an inebriated condition, right, where our reason is compromised, is sinful. Is sinful. We're not acting the way God expects us to act. We must be led in our life by our mind and by our reason, informed by the Word of God. Our minds lead the way, not our emotions. 
they'll, they'll deceive you. They'll take you down a wrong path for sure. Emotions are a wonderful gift of God, but in their place. And the rudder on the ship, my friends, needs to be our intellect, our reason, our mind. Informed by the word of God. That's how God expects us to live. And so we see here such a clear example of people who are in this drunken frenzy and their minds have been cast aside. Now the next application has nothing to do with the previous one. I'm just kind of drawing applications from this that, uh, that occur to me. But the second application is an a, a observation regarding the word church. This is a really interesting chapter, my friends, for our understanding of the word church. So follow me here. If you have your Bible open, and if you look at verse 32, so chapter 19 and verse 32, so then some were shouting one thing and some another for the, you see that word there? For the church. It says assembly, but the word there is ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church. For the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. Now drop down with me to verse 39. Verse 39. So Acts 19 and verse 39. But if you want anything beyond this, says the town clerk or the mayor here, it shall be settled in the lawful, and there it is again, assembly or ecclesia, church. So now it's talking about a basically uh, an assembly of like city commissioners. Before it was that angry mob in the theater. Now it's this group of like city commissioners. And then last, drop down to verse 41. And after saying this, he dismissed the, and there it is the word again, assembly. Now why is this interesting? Because my friends, the apostles, when they were teaching the gospel, they picked words from the culture of their time to articulate the truth of the gospel, to articulate the truth of what Christians believe and practice. And under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, they chose this word, ecclesia, or assembly, or church, to talk about the people of God. And so then it behooves us as Christians to dig into that and think to ourselves, now why did the Spirit of God choose that word? What is it specifically about that word that the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, and the rest of them thought, that's the word we want to use to talk about this right here, what I'm seeing right now and what you are seeing. What we call church is this word ecclesia. Well, we see that in the ancient times it was used for any kind of an assembly, any kind of a gathering together. It could be a mob, a disorganized, chaotic assembly, but still a coming together, right? It could refer to a very orderly assembly like the city commissioners. But what's the common factor between those two? It was a gathering. It was a coming together. And the apostles, again, and, and of course this is what gives its authority, right? Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit of God that inspired these apostles to, 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 to say that is the word we need. Chose this word. And so my friends, what this teaches us then is when we say the word church, it is inherent in that very word the idea of coming together, the idea of a gathering. And that's important because the Spirit of God obviously now is teaching us 
that this coming together is something that is of critical importance for the Christian life. This gathering together as a group with social interactions is the Holy Spirit has put his mark of priority, you might say, on that idea of gathering. Later, you know, the author of Hebrews will say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Well, you see, that idea of forsaking not the assembly of yourselves together is the word church. It's like saying, uh, make sure when you have assembly that you assemble. You see the repetition there? It's completely redundant. Church and assembly are, are almost synonyms. God expects his people to gather. You don't have church if you go off into the woods somewhere and worship God. And by the way, I'm not saying you can't worship God that way. Of course not. Those can be very precious moments for us. But that's not church. That's not an assembling. That's not a gathering together. Do I make myself clear? When we, had, when we could not meet because the COVID pandemic was was uh, something unknown to us, and we, and we had to cancel the services, right? That was an affliction for us, because we could not be the church then. We could not come together. We could not gather. And we felt that painfully until the glad day when we could come together again and be church, be an assembly. When you miss church, right, because you're sick, or you have some other engagement, You don't have church at home, right? Sometimes you people say that, well, I, I had church at home. No, that's not possible. Unless a bunch of Christians came to your home and you gathered there and had church, that, that would be possible. But you, you missed church, right? Let's, let's use our language correctly. You missed church. You might have gone home, you might have listened to a sermon, you might have watched a sermon, you might have read a sermon. But you missed church because you didn't gather now, again, that's not, that's not me talking, right? This is the Spirit of God working through the apostles who landed on this term, church, which bound up in that word church is the idea of assembling together. I think it's important that we know that. And this passage is very interesting because it gives us the usage of the word when it's not referring to the people of God. It's referring to just a gathering of people. At one time, a chaotic gathering of people and at other times a very orderly gathering of people. But in both cases, a gathering. Well, I move then to my third point, which is fear. Because again, I return to, that, uh, I return to the Apostle Paul, who in verse 30, we're told, wanted to go into the assembly, and the disciples would not let him. Now, we already discussed this, some of us, when we came together on Wednesday, didn't we? And we considered the man Ambrose the church father who faced down kings. But here we see an example again of a man who, it doesn't appear that he, he, he experienced fear as we normally experience it. And he seems to have immediately thought, well, I'll just go into that assembly. I'll just go into that theater with all its chaos, with all the danger. They've already got Gaius and Aristarchus. Right? They've already captured those men and dragged them off to the theater, and I imagine it wasn't going well for them. And Paul says, I'll go in there and I'll explain it to them. My friends, how is it that we can have, if not that level of courage, 
even just a measure of that courage. How do you get that kind of bravery? I mean, some of us, we even, we even are embarrassed or ashamed sometimes even to pray in public or, or even to show that we're, we're, we're Christians in public, right? And that's me too. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm appalled at how, how timid I am as a Christian person. Why? How do you get that kind of courage? Well, I think it comes to this. When we read about Demetrius, you'll notice that Demetrius says uh, in verse 26, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Now, the flip side of that, my friends, is that a God who is not made with hands, that a God who is eternal in the heavens, the creator of the heavens and of the earth, is God. He is the one, infinite, true, and eternal God. And my friends, when we fear that God, we don't fear anything else. You know, in the Old Testament, that was the expression used to talk about uh, a devout person, right? He's a God-fearing person. And of course, we know that that fear isn't a, isn't a terror, right, that drives us away from God, right? It's that fear, that healthy fear and respect, right, that awe that draws us to God. Now, my friends, a person who has that kind of fear in his heart, in his soul, does not fear anything else. And yet we do fear things, don't we? We do fear things. And I trust we do have the fear of God in our hearts. Maybe, my friends, it would be better to say, when that fear of God is in exercise, right? When we're acting and living out of that fear, then we fear nothing. And I think that's been the experience of Christians throughout the ages. You want to know the truth, my friends? I don't really think that Paul was that courageous of a person. I don't really think that Ambrose, who we talked about on Wednesday, was all that courageous of a person or all that strong of a person. But they were acting out of that principle, my friends, that I fear God. And if we fear God, we don't fear anything else. That's the secret to courage. Let that kind of fear of God be in exercise in our own souls. And we could stand like Paul. We could stand like Ambrose. We could stand courageous with uh, Christians throughout all ages. There's many stories, many of you know them, of Christians who just refuse to back down. And we read stories like that and think, how is it possible? How is it possible that a Christian in the days of the Roman Empire could refuse to... All they had to do was take a cup and pour out a sacrifice on the altar and they would have been immediately released. All they had to do was say, Caesar is Lord or the emperor, whoever the emperor was, emperor so-and-so is Lord and you'd be set free. How is it possible that those Christians walked up and refused and were torn to pieces by animals, burned at the stake, their heads cut off? How do you get that kind of courage? My friends, when we fear God, 
We don't fear anything else. My fourth application is which temple? Would you read with me this quote that I put on your outline from Tim Keller? He has a book that he wrote on idolatry. And he writes this, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthood, its totems, and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios, stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic or religious proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. My friends, I ask you tonight, God asks you this morning, God asks you this morning, at which temple do you worship? That's the fourth point here. Which temple do you worship? Because the truth of it is, my friends, that Artemis is not great. The Ephesians could have yelled it for two days instead of two hours, and it wouldn't make it true. Artemis is not great. And those who follow Artemis, and those who worship her, and those who think of her as a god, my friends, will one day face the real God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he will say to them, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so I call upon you this morning, my friends, to think in your own life. If your own life, I know you don't stand outside yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But does your life and the actions of it testify to the fact that you are bowing at another altar than the God of Scripture? That you're bowing to something else? Again, he gave two examples there, two very common examples. But we must never think that because we don't stand and yell, great is Artemis, God of the Ephesians, that our life isn't testifying something else. That our life, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our best energies, the way, the places where we put our money and our investments, all testifies that we say, great is, and now you fill in the blank. What is it that we're chasing in this world? What is the thing that we're bowing in front of? What is the thing, my friends, that if some other thing comes along and nudges it aside or somehow stops it up or hinders it, that we fly into a frenzy and into a rage like these silversmiths. Now, I don't know what it is, my friends. It can be such a large variety of things. And the devil is so subtle and so much genius that he has in, 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 in bringing us 
to cry out, not literally, but with our lives, to cry out, great is whatever goddess of you and me, or the God of you and me. So clever to make that the center of our life, all the while that we have a veneer or a a side hustle of religion, if I can put it that way. And so, my friends, it behooves us then to examine ourselves very closely. I wish that you would take that quote from Keller and take it home and read it again, to lay it before the Lord and to be honest with yourself. What is the idol that I'm chasing in this world today? Or perhaps, my friends, what is the idol I am in danger of chasing? The devil is always pushing, even when we walk with God, even when we're living out of the exercise of the fear of God, as we saw in point three, the devil is always trying to draw us to the temple of Artemis. This temple or that temple, whatever temple it may be. And so this passage, my friends, gives us cause to think and to consider that if we live for Artemis, then we'll die with Artemis. If we're followers of Artemis, we'll die with the followers of Artemis. And Revelation depicts it so graphically. In Revelation, it's not Artemis, it's Babylon. And the smoke of her torment goes up forever and forever. That's how serious this is this morning, dear friends. That idolatry is not something that we can just dismiss and say, well, that's not me. Be honest with yourself now because there will be no chance for a repentance and for reverse then. And when the Jesus Christ, the great king, shows himself on the circle of the earth on that last great day, then it will not pay to be a follower of Artemis or of Babylon or of any other modern contemporary god that lifts its head in our culture today. Search the scriptures, my friends. Know the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob and worship him. We end where we began, the call to worship this morning. Worship God. Worship God and him only. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come near to you this morning, reflecting on the fact, Lord, that idols are all around us. We live in a time of so much affluence, so much wealth, so much prosperity. And Lord, you've given so many of us great success in these matters. And we're thankful for it, Lord. We don't dismiss that either. We are thankful for it, but please help us, Lord, to lay all these things at your feet. Grant, O Lord, that these things would not become an idol to us. Not the, the, the body worship of Aphrodite, as we see it both then and now, not the pursuit of wealth and prestige and influence in society, again, present then, but just as present now. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to discover these idols in our life and to be ruthless with them, to put them to death, to smash them, to put them in the pile with the other Ephesian Christians and to burn them up, to make no compromise with them, but to destroy them. Lord, help us to be courageous. Give us, that, give us that courage that Paul had. And may we be Christians, not in name only, but in very truth, in heart and soul, in life and practice. And that we might have a good hope, Lord, that one day the gates of that glorious city will go open for us. Wash our robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And all this we ask in his precious name. Amen. Let's turn now in their hymnal to number, the blue hymnal to number 188. Number 188, Uh, we will sing, let's sing uh, verses 1 and 2 and 3 of 188. Jehovah reigns as king, to him all homage bring. And what follows then in verses 1, 2, and 3 of 188 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.